Well, we're continuing our sermon series this morning. We're in the book of Hosea. We're in Hosea chapter 8. You can find that printed for you in your bulletin. So my question to start with, and the answer is going to pop in here. The obvious answer is going to come to you, but it's not the right answer. Um, what do Stephen Seagal and Pauly Shore, remember Pauly Shore, and Nicholas Cage and Adam Sandler and Eddie Murphy and Charlie Sheen and John Travolta and Meg Ryan and Halle Berry all have in common? They're celebrities, yes, but they also appeared recently on Ranker uh, of a list of celebrities who nobody cares about anymore. Okay, and you're supposed to rank. Which of these celebrities is the most irrelevant? People who were once big deal, but now they're irrelevant. And I'm a little bit offended that Nicolas Cage is on this list because <laughs> raising Arizona will never be irrelevant. But what, what, what I want to do this morning is I want to ask, what is it that causes the church to become irrelevant? What is it that causes us to become irrelevant as a church, the society around us? Uh, The British author Francis Spurford in his book Unapologetic writes, My daughter has just turned six. Sometime over the next year or so, she will discover that her parents are weird. We're weird because we go to church. Uh, Christianity is not only considered irrelevant to many people in Great Britain, it's considered embarrassing as well. Uh, And we're not, as a culture, in the same place as Great Britain is, where only 6% of the population actually goes to church regularly. But I'd argue we're on the same glide path, that we're moving in that direction. So what we're going to do this morning is talk about what's leading us down that path to becoming irrelevant. And we're not going to think about so much the cultural context as what's going on with us that would cause us to be irrelevant the society around us. So look with me. This is God's word. We're reading from the book of Hosea, chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Set the trumpet to your lips. One like a vulture is over the house of the Lord because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. To me they cry, my God, we, Israel, know you. Israel has spurned the good. The enemy shall pursue him. They made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel. A craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads, it shall yield no flower. If it were to yield, strangers would devour it. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. For they have gone up to Assyria, a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has hired lovers. Though they hire allies among the nations, I will soon gather them up. And the king and princes shall soon writhe because of the tribute. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins. They shall return to Egypt. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. 
So I will send a fire upon his cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, give us help as we uh, look at your word. There, there are parts of it that are more difficult than others, and, and certainly Hosea at times is like that. Uh, but you have given us this for our uh, edification and our growth in grace. Uh, so I pray, Father, now that you would help me as I uh, speak, that you will help me to speak clearly and, and truthfully. I pray that you would open our hearts so that we can hear accurately. And I pray that you would work change where change is needed. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So kind of where I'm, I'm going with this this morning, we, in the book of Hosea, we could every week come in here and say, God is judging Israel because they've done bad stuff. And that, that might get repetitive after a little bit. So we're, we're going a different angle each week of these texts. And, and where we're looking today is verse 8, really, is kind of where I'm spinning all this around. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. And so what I, I think this text is telling us is that when God's people put their trust and hope in things other than God, not only do they come under God's judgment, as we, as we see obviously here, but they also become useless. They become irrelevant to the society around them. When, when we put our trust in the wrong places, we become just like the world, and we have nothing then to offer to the world. <clears throat> 1993, uh, the height of the AIDS epidemic, uh, this disease was, was devastating many communities, especially Hollywood. But there was a man, and there wasn't a cure in sight, but there was a man named Henry Heimlich. And that name is familiar to you for the right reason, the Heimlich Maneuver. He was a, he was a doctor, and he came along... And he told Joanna Carson, who was the, one of the ex-wives of the talk show host Johnny Carson, he told Joanna Carson that he had come up with a treatment that could cure AIDS. And in order to, to get this treatment to the people, what he needed was $600,000 and the ability to do some, some human trials for his treatment. So she gathered at just an A-list gathering of celebrities at her home, Bob Hope, Jack Nicholson, Ron Howard, all these people came to her, home to, hear, to her home to hear Dr. Heimlich's presentation about how he intended to cure the AIDS virus. And basically what he told them was this. He said that the FDA and the American Medical Association were just, the bureaucracies were too big and they were keeping people from actually testing the things that needed to be tested and you needed to take them out of the equation uh, and he needed some money to be able to do this. But what he wanted to do was, he said, if you got the temperature of the human body up to 105 degrees in a controlled environment, the, the, yeah, Coleman's eyes just got real big. If you got the, the temperature up to 105 degrees, that you could actually kill the AIDS virus and that the people would be okay. And the way that he was going to get their body temperature up to 105 degrees was he was actually going to introduce malaria into these AIDS patients, raise their temperature, and then cure the AIDS virus. And so they bought it. And they gave him the $600,000. And he went to China. And he tried this treatment on dozens of patients. And he got their body temperature up to 105 degrees and killed the AIDS virus because he killed them. They all died kind of excruciating deaths that I won't go into. He does this again in Africa in one other place. But you think about this. These, there's all these celebrities who are wanting to do this good thing but they put their trust in the wrong place. They put their trust in a doctor who failed them, and so they had nothing good. They had no good news to offer the world. 
I think that's a good picture of what Israel is doing here in the book of Hosea. They're putting their trust in the wrong doctors, so to speak. They're putting their trust in the wrong places. And all these things fail them. And all this, all this accomplishes is it brings them under judgment and leaves them in a place where they now have no good news to offer to the world around them. So what are the places where they put their trust? All right, we're going we're to look at five of these from the text this morning. They put their trust in political leaders. They put their trust in idols. They put their trust in human help. They put their trust in religion. And they put their trust in the word of the culture instead of the word of God. All right, so let's, let's kind of go through these. They have this misplaced trust, trust uh, in politicians. Uh, verse 4, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. Now, you kind of got to understand the history of the kings in Israel. In 1 Samuel 8, Samuel has been leading the people of Israel. And he's gotten old. And I always picture Samuel as kind of the old Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of guy in the brown robe. So Samuel has been leading the people of Israel. He's getting old. His sons have just kind of gone off the rails and the elders of Israel come to, here, come to him and say, look, man, you're, you're old and your sons are corrupt. We want a king like all the other nations around us have. They've had no king up until this point. And you notice kind of what's left out there is they, they don't pray about this. They don't ask what God thinks about this. Uh, they don't ask Samuel to pray about this. They simply confront Samuel. They've already made up their minds. They know this is what we need to make everything all right. We need a king like the other nations. Now, early in the book of Deuteronomy, God had talked about this day when the people would want a king, and he was actually okay with that as long as certain uh, stipulations were met. What God's concerned about in the book of Samuel is with why they want the king. Why do they want the king? What is it that's driving this? They just wanted to be like the nations around them. And they thought that their hope wasn't in God, but it was in having a king like the nations around them. And so through the Old Testament, you can read about the the kings of Israel. and Some of them were better than others. Some of them were, were pretty awful. But by the time you get to Hosea's day, they had a period where they went through 19 kings Uh, I can't remember the number of years, but 19 kings, and seven of those kings were assassinated. All right, this is how they found the next one. There was just a political coup. They killed the guy, and the next king takes over. Nobody's calling out to God in that environment. Uh, Nobody's looking to God for the right king. Someone just rose up, assassinated whoever's in power, and took over. And so the, the politics of that day was quite literally all about power the people wanted kings like the nations around them thinking that that would be their deliverance and the kings failed them and so they had this misplaced trust in their political leaders now what does it look like for the church today to have a misplaced trust in our political leaders Certainly, individual Christians can, and you could argue should, be involved in the political process. But what's the difference between being involved in the political process and having a misplaced trust in politicians? Uh, Here's what I, I think it starts to look like. 
it looks like us being so convinced that, that my candidate or my party has got to win for everything to be okay, <clears throat> that we begin to say things like this. This is the most important election of our lifetime. And so will the next one be. And so will the next one be. Because if it doesn't happen this time, then, then we're doomed. We say things like that. We say things like, well, I'm moving if my candidate doesn't win because there's no hope for our nation if my guy doesn't win. <clears throat> we criticize the person in the other party for playing golf when he's supposed to be working, but if our guy's playing golf when he's supposed to be working, that, that's okay. He needs some time off, right? Um, we can't stop talking about how important character is in a leader unless it's our guy that lacks character, and then we're not electing a preacher suddenly. We're electing a politician. Like, it just goes out the window. It looks like believing everything about your party is just and right, and everything about the other party is bad and evil. So much so that you don't just disagree, that you actually demonize the people on the other side. <clears throat> the Babylon Bee, and this is satire, so you have to know that. Those of you who haven't read the Babylon Bee, I, I felt like nailed this recently. This is what they said. Discussing politics in the Internet age requires careful thought, introspection, and the proper level of hatred for the opposing side. That's why it's important to keep the golden rule of political discourse in mind. Your own political movement is best represented by its shining stars, its deep thinkers, its models of class and civility, while the opposing political movement is best represented by its dreck, its extremist, its unhinged monsters who commit unspeakable acts of evil. A lot of people get burned out on politics, and that's because they don't have the proper level of passionate hatred for the other side. This lack of zeal can often be traced to the fact that they see their political foes as human beings rather than as the scum of the earth they really are. It's really important to demonize your enemies so you can get worked up into a frenzy every time they do something. A sixth thing, uh, misplaced trust in politicians looks like placing our hope in the king, in the president, in the governor, whoever, rather than in the one who holds the king's heart in his hands, right? And so it's easy for us to have a misplaced trust in politicians. Secondly, uh, the people of Israel had a misplaced trust in their idols. Look at verse 4. They made, king, they made kings, but not through me. They set up princes, but I knew it not. With their silver and gold, they made idols for their own destruction. I have spurned your calf, O Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? For it is from Israel a craftsman made it. It is not God. The calf of Samaria shall be broken to pieces. Um, Exodus 32, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. While he's up there, the people kind of go crazy and they tell Aaron, we want you to make a God for us because we don't know if Moses is coming back or not. So he takes their jewelry and he makes a calf which they begin to worship. Uh, later, when Jeroboam leads the rebellion that results in the creation of the northern kingdom of Israel, he sets up golden calves at Bethel and at Dan. And so the people had this long history of idol worship that the prophets were continually condemning. Well, we don't have golden calves or, you know, Physically, but, but what are some of our idols? 
Uh, Frederick Nietzsche said that there are more idols in the world than there are realities. G.K. Chesterton said that when we cease to worship God, we don't worship nothing, we worship anything. Uh, Richard Keyes says we don't just eliminate God, we erect God's substitutes in his place. Uh, Tim Keller begins his book on counterfeit gods by telling about a, a string of tragic suicides that happened after the stock market crash of 2008, the chief financial officer of Freddie Mac, uh, a French investment manager who managed the money for many of the royal families in Europe were among those who took their own life. And he uses that as a lead-in to begin to talk about idolatry. And he defines idolatry this way. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, our career and making money, our achievement and critical acclaim, our saving face and social standing. It can be romantic relationships, peer approval, confidence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life has meaning, then I know I'll have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. But our, our misplaced idols, our misplaced trust, always eventually let us down. They never deliver in the long run on what we've hoped they would bring us. Uh, what are some of the ways just for a second, that we can find the things that are idols in our life. I always like to ask a few questions. Um, where do your thoughts go when you have nothing else demanding your attention? Like, like, where does your mind just most naturally go? How do you spend your money? You go back through your checkbook ledger or however you keep up with how you spend your money. What is it that we're chasing after in all of our consuming that we love to do as Americans? Why, why is it so much easier for us to spend money on cars and clothes and houses than it is to give money to the poor? Um, is it a joy for me to be able to tithe and, and give away a tenth of my income, or is that just this burdensome requirement of God that, like, I'll do that grudgingly if I have some money left over at the end of the month? Uh, why, as, as one missionary said to me recently, does the church seem to have become less interested, the church generally, to have become less interested in supporting missionaries over the past 10 years? Like, like what's going on in our hearts? What are our idols that are driving that trend? How do, we spend, how do you spend your time? You know, uh, America is a crazy, busy culture. Why is that? Why are we so busy? I mean, there are, don't get me wrong, there are legitimate reasons for, for busyness. Uh, some of us are in just busy careers. Some of us are in busy seasons of life where we, you know, we've got young kids and it's just, we're just trying to, to make it through that. But I think it's helpful from time to time to kind of do a, a time audit and just say, like, what, am I, what are we chasing with our constant going? What is it that I'm, I'm trying to, to get by filling every second of my calendar 
with something to do? Why, why is Sabbath so hard for me? Why can I just sit down and not do anything? Well, those are some questions to think about as you try to diagnose your own idols. But we have this misplaced trust in idols. Thirdly, uh, we have a misplaced trust in human resources. Verse 9 Uh, We're told that Israel has run off to Assyria for help. Verse 10, they go and they're trying to hire allies from among the nations. And so there's this trust in human resources. What does that look like for us? What what does self-trust look like for you and me? I think it can look like a lot of anxiety and worry. Um, It can look like scrolling through page after page online, trying to find the cure for what ails me. I know if I just click one more time, I'm going to find what it is that I've been looking for. It can look like me beating myself up, believing that because I I blew that, then all is lost, and I'm somehow all-powerful, and my one mistake can just screw up the rest of the world. Uh, It looks like constantly checking your, your phone for that message that you just can't wait to hear what that reply is going to be, and you're just anxiously waiting instead of, Letting that phone sit and maybe praying to God about what it is that concerns you. Um, One author said this, there's no better measure of an individual's reliance on God than their commitment to pray. And there's no better measure of a church's reliance on God than the health of its prayer meetings. Now, we don't have a formal prayer meeting maybe maybe that's something we should have we do have times of prayer where you can gather a men's gathering on thursday morning our community groups are opportunities where you can gather with other believers and and pray you know community group leaders i just encourage you to think about what would it look like for us to spend 30 minutes praying together not not 30 minutes taking prayer requests and five minutes praying but but 30 minutes praying together and why is that extended period of time so hard and and awkward for us um turning the focus on myself why is uh why is it so easy for me to sit and write a sermon and so hard to stop and pray about the sermon isn't that a misplaced trust in myself and what i'm able to put together instead of trusting in god what sunday morning looked like for you like are you like you get up and, and the hour or two before you come to church do you spend any time preparing and praying for what's about to happen here? Are, are you just kind of hoping, well, I hope Justin wrote a good sermon this week, uh, or I hope Keith leads good music this week. Like, we're, you're putting your, your hope in us, the people up here, when we do that. What is it like just to like, all right, God, I hope you show up today and that you bless what's being done. We have this misplaced trust. Uh, in human beings and human health. Fourthly, uh, we can have a misplaced trust in religion. Look in verse 11. Because Ephraim has multiplied altars for sinning, they have become to him altars for sinning. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Well, they're, they're religious, right? Why doesn't God accept that? What's he getting at? You know, What if God showed up talking to us and says... Your, your sanctuary is a sanctuary for sinning. Or he came and he looked at the Lord's table and said, your communion table is a table for, for sinning. Uh, in Hosea's day, the people had built altars ostensibly for offering sacrifices to God uh, where, where they were you know, representing the atonement 
for sin. But in reality, it's what they had become were just places where people went to go through their religious motions. Oh, yeah, we're supposed to offer sacrifices. Let's go offer sacrifices. Uh, or they had become places where they actually, instead of worshiping God, they worshiped Baal. And so God's saying, your act of worship has actually become an occasion for sin. It's not really worship. Um, if I, if you're right, if we pray, are we come to worship to, to win God's approval? Or we're doing this to try to kind of hedge our bets and make sure God's going to give me a good life? Um, that's not really trust in God. That's trust in my religious acts. That's me trying to manipulate God. Uh, if, if I live in a way that ignores God and the people around me, if I don't love, practice love of God and love of neighbor during the week, but then I come and go through the religious motions in some kind of attempt to, to buy off God, I, I think I'm doing what he's getting at here in, uh, in the book of Hosea. I've, I've built an altar for sinning. It, it's a religious form, but it's not really doing any good with God. There are other prophets that kind of harped on this with the people of Israel in this same time. Amos 5, this is what God says, I hate, I despise your feast, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melodies of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Uh, Book of Isaiah, chapter 1, very similar. What, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. We have this, we can have this misplaced trust in our religious activity. And lastly, uh, we can have a misplaced trust in the world, the word of the culture instead of trusting the word of God. Look at verse 12. Were I to write for him my laws by the ten thousands, they would be regarded as a strange thing. Um, you know, the, the Bible says a very different thing about sexuality, about gender, about money, about possessions, about what the good life is. and I could multiply these, but it says a very different thing than the culture around us says. And it's not unclear on these issues. Uh, it's, it's very clear that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is sinful. It's very clear that accumulating wealth, you have to be careful with that because it can be hazardous 
for your soul. It's very clear that people are, are made in God's image and likeness and not simply evolved from apes. It's very clear that we are broken and sinful and in need of redemption from outside of ourselves. We face this constant temptation not to trust that. Because we've got the latest news that someone's posted in our Facebook feed about how somebody that did a study thinks we ought to discipline our children. Or the latest authority in whatever field is telling us, no, we've figured out this is the way this needs to be done, or the latest late-night talk show host, or the latest, you know, whoever in our family or our friends. And it's very easy for us to absorb the outlook of the culture around us. And, the, and like the people around us, we begin to view God's word as a strange thing. Now, this is what everybody else says. 74%. They said it on CNN last night. And so what God says about something can seem to us strange thing. So what happens then when we have these misplaced trusts? When we're putting our trust in politicians and idols and our own human resources and religion and in the voices of the surrounding culture, verse 14 says, for Israel has forgotten his maker. When we're putting our trust in all these other things, we forget about God. We forget about God. We forget our maker. And so we become a lot like the writer of Ecclesiastes, trying to find meaning in everything under the sun. Trying to find life and joy and meaning apart from God. And as we run that rabbit, we wind up like the writer of Ecclesiastes, crying meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. We, we wind up chasing the same thing. As everybody else around us, we just try to dress it up with some religious ceremony and religious clothing. Uh, Not long after the founding of Oklahoma City in 1889, the citizens of Oklahoma City were obsessed with being a world-class city. And this was an era of of great canal building, so they decided they were going to build a canal. There was a river that flowed through the middle of Oklahoma City, but it was prone to dry up or go over its banks. It was not very predictable. You couldn't count on it. And so they decided to build this great canal through the middle of the city so that they could control the, the flow of the water. And so they brought in engineers and construction workers, and they started building. And they built factories and mills and shops and homes along what was going to be this great canal. It took them a year to, to dig it. Um, it was six miles long. And it opened on Christmas Eve of, of 1890, and all the citizens came running out. This is like a huge celebration. This is a big deal. We are, we are arriving on the scene as a world-class city. And so the, they opened the dike, and the water flowed in, and the people celebrated. And they even had barrels that they threw into the water to watch them float down this new canal. And then the water disappeared. The, the ground actually soaked up the water that they had run through it. And and the people didn't really understand why, because they had done this same sort of project in in Kansas earlier. And so they turned the water back on. And it filled up again. And then the sandy soil sucked up the water once again. And they did this over and over for months. They would fill it up and then it would get sucked out again. And and I don't haven't finished reading the book yet. So I'm not sure if they ever figured out how to how to fix this. But, but at that time, the, the canal was completely 
useless. It was irrelevant to the life of Oklahoma City. It was actually a burden on Oklahoma City. No matter how many times they tried to fill it up, it didn't matter. When you and I forget God and we try to fill up our lives by trusting in things like politics and idols and our own resources and religion and the words of the surrounding culture, we're, we're never filled up. We're never filled up. We expect the, the water of these things to flow in to bring us happiness, but it never lasts and it always drains away and we're always empty again and we become useless and irrelevant to the surrounding culture. We're empty vessels. Look at verse 8 again. Israel is swallowed up. Already they are among the nations as a useless vessel. See, when, when we forget our maker, when we forget the gospel, when we forget that Jesus saves not religion, that Jesus saves not politics, that Jesus saves not the idols of my heart, we become empty vessels. We're trying to fill ourselves up, but it's always running back out. We become empty vessels, useless vessels with nothing to offer the world around us. I mean, if my functional savior is the same functional savior as everybody else in America, do I really have anything to offer them that's unique? So what do we need then if we're not going to be an empty vessel, if we're not going to be a useless vessel? I'm just going to suggest two things for you to think about. Uh, number one, we have to heed the words of the prophets, and we have to learn to love the least of these we, we have to learn to love people knowing that it is going to make my life more difficult. It is going to make my life less comfortable. And as we do that, the culture around us is going to see that. There's, going to notice that's, there's something different there. They're not living for themselves. They're living for something bigger. And then secondly, we need a real king. And we need true worship. And we need God's help. And we need God's word. Uh, we need Jesus as our king who rules us and defends us. We need to trust him as our king. We need Jesus as our prophet who speaks the word of God to us. And we give heed to that word. We need Jesus as our priest who prays for us and who offers up himself as a sacrifice to satisfy God's justice so that our sins might be forgiven. We need a savior who gave himself up for us. Even when we were running away from him, trying to fill our lives with everything else, we need a Savior who forgives us and fills us and restores us. And we have that Savior in Jesus. We pray for us. Father, would you help us to, uh, we need to transfer our trust. And we need to move it away from political power, and we need to move it away from idols, we need to move it away from human help, we need to move it away from religion, we need to move it to Jesus. Would you help us to do that? Would you help us to quit chasing everything that everybody around us is chasing and put our trust in Jesus? And in so doing, Lord Jesus, would you fill us? 
And would you assure us that we are forgiven? And would you make us useful vessels to spread your good news to the world around us? Pray in your name.